You have found the Looking Glass Forum, and we are removing the shackles of ignorance, shedding light on the forbidden knowledge of human history, and drawing you into the circle of true knowledge and true illumination. The lies are many, but the truth is one. So we're back at the Looking Glass Forum, and I want to continue on our previous discussions, and I want to take some time to elaborate the circumstances surrounding the public exposure of the Illuminati, which was centralized in Bavaria. The world's history would be understood in a very different perspective if the Illuminati scheme had not been suddenly exposed in the historical court record in Germany. Even after the investigation began, the order possessed a great deal of power to conceal and continue its agenda. In order to look a little more closely and how this European secret society, this power structure, had gotten exposed in the first place. I want to take a look at a very interesting book. Like I said before, I don't want to promote all these different authors or thinkers or necessarily their ideas, but what I'm looking at is their treatment of history and their treatment of the facts and how they use the historical record for their own purposes to establish their point of view. And in this case, we have a book called Through Darkness into Light, Endless Cycles of the Divine Plan, Volume 1, by Georges C. Hatton. And this was a book that was published in 1992 by American West Publishers. And I just want to just jump in here. We're on page 37, and it starts out, These thinkers could clearly see that the corruption and depravity that decimated the strength of the Catholic Church, which had promulgated many of the ideas now proved to be totally fallacious, they saw that the church commonly believed to be the body of Christ held its adherence in subjugation by a means of fear and superstitious, superstitious ritual. They falsely assumed that the myths and superstitions of the Dark Ages were based on the Bible. When they proved that these superstitions were false, they assumed without any real proof that they had proved the Bible to be false. These teachings of the Roman Catholic Church were based on the Satan-inspired Babylonian mystery religion, not on the Bible. Under an unending barrage of such enlightened scholarship, the intelligentsia of Europe were prepared by the second half of the 18th century for the advent of Illuminism, the secret society called the Illuminati. The Order of the Illuminati was founded on May 1st, 1776, by Dr. Adam Weisha, professor of canon law at the University of Ingolstadt, Bavaria. A convert to Roman Catholicism was a former Jesuit priest who broke with the order to form his own organization. Of course, I think that's a treatment of history that we're supposed to believe that Adam Weisha broke with the Jesuits in order to form the Illuminati. I don't think that was the case. I think that what we, we established earlier on was that Clement Thirteenth tried to delete the Jesuit order from history and was killed and murdered and poisoned and, and Clement Fourteenth came in and picked up where Clement Thirteenth left off and they extinguished the Jesuit order by a papal bull. So that was in 1773 that this happened. So what we're seeing is that the, the rise of the Illuminati power is a transfer of the power of the Jesuit to a covert clandestine agency, and this would be in Germany where there was the Jesuits had a centralization of their power, and they were operating at, under a new guise as the Illuminati. And really trying to get down here to this section right here, public attention was first drawn to the existence of the Illuminati and their diabolical plan for world conquest as the result of a bizarre accident in 1785. History records that a courier for the Illuminati named Lenzay, or L-A-N-Z-E, was racing on horseback from Frankfurt to Paris, carrying documents relating to the Illuminati activities in general, and specific instructions for the planned French Revolution in particular. The documents originated with Jewish members of the Illuminati in Germany and were addressed to the Grand Master of the Grand Orient Masons in Paris. As the courier galloped through Radisbon, Regensburg, he was struck by lightning and killed. All of the papers he was carrying fell into the hands of the local police, who turned them over to the Bavarian government. The authorities ordered the police to raid the headquarters of the Illuminati, and this resulted in additional documents being captured. These documents revealed that the conspirators had worldwide aims. All of the carefully documented evidence was brought to the attention of the governments of Britain, Germany, Austria, France, Poland, and Russia. For one reason or another, possibly inside Illuminati influence, they chose to turn a deaf ear to the warnings contained in these dreadful documents. Four years later, the French Revolution exploded on the European scene in all of its hideous fury. Sir Walter Scott, in the second volume of his The Life of Napoleon, points out that the events leading up to the French Revolution were all created by the money barons. The Illuminati 
whose agents then led the mob in creating the famous Reign of Terror. The first break, as far as inside information on the Illuminati is concerned, came when these great intellectuals were foolish enough to invite Professor John Robeson, R-O-B-I-S-O-N, to join their ranks. Robeson didn't fall for the lie that the goals of the Illuminati were pure and honorable. He kept his reactions to himself, however, and played along with the conspirators. Subsequently, he was entrusted with top-secret Illuminati documents and was able to scrutinize their inner workings of the secret society at close range. As a result, Professor Robeson wrote a startling book entitled Proofs of a Conspiracy, which was published in 1797. All of what is currently known about the early Illuminati comes from Robeson's book and another written by the author Abbe Burial, and that's the author's name is Abbe Burial, and that's A-B-B-E-B-U-R-R-U-E-L. And it was published in 1798, entitled Memoirs Illustrating the History of Jacobinism. Both books, although the authors were known to each other, give us clear-cut out picture of the organization. The books quote extensively from the original writings of the Order and the Sect of the Illuminati, which is an official report by the Bavarian government issued in 1786 following a lengthy investigation. Goes on to say the following facts emerge. Adam Weishup was born on the 6th of February, 1748. His early training by Jesuits had inspired him to an intense, and it goes on to say some more about that. And so I I don't agree with the entire premise of the book, but I can't overlook the fact that they have to deal with these facts of history and how they have to shed light on the development of the Illuminati and the actual facts as they emerge. So you can go back into the Bavarian court record and you can look up this, this book that when they ended the investigation, you can read the book, the original writings of the order and the sect of the Illuminati. You can actually read the documents that they found. So I just wanted to go back and point out that this exposure of the Illuminati, when the quarter was struck by lightning and killed, was really a provident act of God. So we might have never have known that these people were operating like this if it hadn't been for this providence. And so I was relating to that earlier in an earlier episode that I thought it was very providential that Anthony Weiner's laptop was found when he was sexting with some 14-year-old girl and he looked at his laptops through some kind of FBI investigation, I guess, that they forgot to control through the deep state or whatever, what have you, and they discovered the entire Epstein pedophile ring at that time. And I just think that that was a providential act of God. So I wanted to point out also that it was the Illuminati who early on would feed uh, different people they intended to subjugate under their uh, their influence and their blackmail schemes and their kind of political manipulation and they would give people what they wanted and they would also have the uh, the evidence of their misdeeds and they would hold this over their heads and that's how they would get a lot of people to join the Illuminati and this is the same thing that was happening on Epstein Island. They were taking people to a pedophile island but and, and giving elite politicians and movie stars uh, illegal sex with minors or what have you. There's no really no telling and they were videotaping it so that they could ultimately use it as evidence to control these people later on so i think that we're seeing the same di- same dynamics of the illuminati there and i want to go ahead and take another look here we were talking before about the um the issues surrounding december 25th and this is an interesting book by uh, shaka babado dolo and i can't say that i really you know am supporting this person's research in this book it's called the genesis of the bible but on two page 210 they have an interesting write-up here about the whole issue with December 25th. And I think it's interesting. And this is just their treatment of the facts. I'm not going to necessarily throw my weight behind this book here. The Roman Catholic Church decided to choose December 25th as the birthday of their God, since most Europeans were already celebrating Saturnalia on December 25th as a holiday. And if you go back in the historical record in the the Roman Empire, Saturnalia uh, in AD 200 wasn't really mostly Europe, it was really mostly the Roman Empire, which really wasn't described as Europeans at that time. But they're making the point, since most Europeans are already celebrating Saturnalia on December 25th as a holiday, actually it was a whole week long in the Roman culture, the Western Christian world, with the exception of Eastern Afro-Catholic Church, and perhaps the Coptic Church of Ethiopia and Egypt, have always celebrated December 25th as the birthday of the divine solar god, or basically sun worship. Apollo, if you will. And that is what Mr. Durant 
said about the celebration of Christmas by the Western civilization as the birthday of Jesus on December 25th in the story of civilization, paganism survived in the moral sense within the Western church as a joyous indulgence to satisfy the natural appetites of pagan Europe. Western Christianity as a religion is only true in the form of ancient rites, rituals, and old customs condoned and accepted by the Roman Catholic Church. The system in which an intimate and truthful worship of saints replaced the cults of ancient European pagan gods' worship. The custom which satisfied the congenial polytheistic worship of pagan Europe. The Greco-Roman Lupercalia, which was a festival held in ancient Rome on the 15th of February to promote fertility and to ward off disasters, was transformed into Christmas. The Saturnalia celebration of December 25th was replaced with Christmas celebration and made as the birthday of Jesus. As for December 25th being the birthday of Jesus, it was an economic decision made by, long before this change, the Greco-Roman holiday of Saturnalia was celebrated on December 17th to December 23rd, and later extended to the 24th to 25th. December 25th being observed as the birthday of Saturn by his devotees, by his devotees, and as the birthday of Mithra by the followers of Zoroastrianism, all became Christmas. The Saturnalia festival later became Christmas, and it was referred to in the Greco-Roman Catholic Empire of Ancient and Medieval Europe as the Festival of Fools. So that was why in the previous episode we were talking about and criticizing the practice of this tradition and trying to make you aware that it's fully divorced from the Word of God. And so after we get to the point later in the 17 and 1800s where we're printing out the scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament in English and in French and in German languages so that people can read them. And it's not just a few people who can read Greek, a few scholars who can read Latin, but it's in fact the, the wider public en masse gets to take a look at the scriptures. We're, we're realizing that a lot of these pagan, Zoroastrian, Mithraic, and, and Greco-Roman pagan traditions are really being practiced today in the name of Christ. So some might call that Antichrist. I don't know. But that's where we're getting that. And so I want to take it a little bit farther here and point out in this pretty interesting book here that I was taking a look at earlier. It's called The Seed of the Woman and the Power of Darkness by Dunbar Asayamli. And the interesting part of the book that he gets into here, and I'll start to read, it's true that Christmas originated from the tradition celebrated by the Roman pagans called Saturnalia. Saturnalia was the harvest festival that marked the winter solstice, the return of the sun, the honored Saturn, and the god of sowing. Most scholars recorded that Saturnalia was celebrated once a year from the 17th to the 25th of December. Lawrence Clement, in the article The History of Christmas, stated, Roman pagans first introduced the holiday of Saturnalia, a week-long period of lawlessness celebrated between 17th and the 25th of December. During this period, Roman courts were closed. The Roman law dictated that no one could be punished by it for damaging property or injuring people during the week-long celebration. The festival began when Roman authorities chose an enemy of the Roman people to represent the Lord of Misrule, and each Roman community selected a victim whom they forced to indulge in food or other physical pleasures throughout the week. At the festival's conclusion, December 25th, the Roman authorities believed they were destroying the forces of darkness by brutally murdering this innocent man or woman. Lucian, who was the ancient Greek writer, poet, and historian recorded in his dialogue entitled Saturnalia, wherein he described the festival's observance in his time. Lucian mentioned that in addition to human sacrifice, the customs of celebrating the festival of Saturnalia included widespread intoxication, going from house to house while singing naked, rapes occurred, authorized sexual activities, and consuming human-shaped biscuits. These human-shaped biscuits are still used by some people during the Christmas season presently. Nearly all aspects of Christmas observance have their roots in Roman custom and religion, which originated from the ancient Babylonian religion. In the 4th century, Emperor Constantine designated the 25th of December, the birthday of the Roman sun god Mithra, the sun, the, the solar deity of righteousness, and he designated the 25th as the birthday of Jesus Christ, thereby placing the true savior among the pantheon of Roman gods. Mithra is no other than the incarnate sun god, 
Tammuz of the Babylonian religion. Hence, the date 25th of December was not selected because it was the birthday of Jesus Christ, but it was selected because it coincided with the idolatrous pagan festival of Saturnalia, and it was so overwhelm overwhelmingly popular that they couldn't get rid of it. And in the Greek, it came through the Greek period as the Carnival, or the, car the flesh, Carnass, Carnal. That's what car Carnival means. An article in the Toronto Star, December 1984, by Alan Edmonds, entitled We Owe a Lot to the Druids, Dutch. Alan Edmonds mentioned the Reformation cast blight on Christmas. And the Reformation, the Protestants didn't practice it, and they refused to take part of the pagan idolatry of it. And as we go on, by then, of course, clever ecclesi ecclesiastical politicians had adopted the pagan midwinter festival as the alleged birth date of Jesus of Nazareth, and thrown in a few other pagan goodies to make their take over more palatable. It is therefore understood that the pagans uphold the sanctity of the 25th of December as the birthday of the sun, as the birthday of our local star, and the birthday of the incarnate solar god, Nimrod in the form of Tammuz, the illegitimate son of Semiramis, mother and wife of Nimrod. So we're going pretty far back, pretty far back into the roots of the occult history there which ties into the Babylonian mystery religion. As we go on, in the 4th century AD, when Christianity was polluted with false teachings, the church was concentrating on a quantity and not quality. Ultimately, the church reconciled with the traditions of the pagans, hence the festival of Saturnalia was imported into the church, hoping to make it make to take in the pagan masses with it. Christian leaders succeeded in converting large numbers of pagans to Christianity by promising them that they could continue to celebrate Saturnalia as Christians. The problem with this was that there was nothing intrinsically Christian about Saturnalia. To redress this, Christian leaders then named Saturnalia Saturnalia's concluding day, the 25th of December, to be the, the birthday of Jesus Christ. Henceforth, the name of Saturnalia was removed and Christmas festival entered into the same pagan customs of celebration. So we don't have to elaborate that anymore. I just wanted to make that point that it's just a simple fact of history that when you're engaging in the practice of Christ Mass each year, it's really a pagan Babylonian ritual. And I just don't advise it. I don't think that it's able to be rectified with the true religion and the spiritual nature of biblical Christianity. So as we're going forward in the news here today, they are starting to move the marshals and the, the Army Reserve troops and federal officers into positions in Chicago and other areas. And we need to be able to clearly see the nature of the conflict that is starting to grow here. And it, this is a conflict that's set to try to overturn the stability and the continuity of government within the United States. The way the socialist left is in lockstep in Hollywood and in the media and at the same time in academia across the college campuses. This is where the ideological subversion of our young people is taking place, where the youth are transformed by concepts that as weak-minded young people, they're not intellectually or morally prepared to defend against. Many people's careers depend on towing the, this left-leaning party line, no matter how extreme it gets. And you can see now that the, the silhouette and the after-effects of a, a wide, unseen conspiracy is operating behind the scenes, and their clandestine combination can clearly be seen by the public now in their machinations as they are able to move the news cycle and manipulate presidential polls and shift the operations of the World Health Organization or shift the local district attorneys who are operating on this unified, socialist, anti-American platform. So let's take a look now here at Dave from the X-22 report. has an interesting insight to add. And I really want to think logically when we listen to some of these reports and we're interested in hearing what the d different developments are and what people are bringing to the conversation. But something like the X-22 report, I don't want to fully vest my, my interest in it. I'm not sure where they get the reports from, but I'm, I want to analyze the different insights that they're bringing in. Ultimately, I don't want to be double-crossed by X-22. I want to learn how to use the information to get a wider perspective. So here's a, an interesting point of view from Dave at X-22 Report. The Patriots already knew that this was going to happen. This is part of their plan. I know you think the pandemic, the riots, is the deep state pushing their agenda. It is, but the patriots are actually controlling them in what they do. And you'll see why I'm saying this, because everything that we talked about before that has to do with the storm, with crimes against humanity, exposing human trafficking, go back in time when the pandemic first started. You can see how everything is falling into place. And when you look back in a lot of the posts, you can see that Q has told us what was going to happen. 
what was going to happen. And seeing it happen, that means that the patriots were always in control of what is going on right now. Yes, Trump, his administration, yes, they could just send all the troops to all these cities. He can stop this from happening. He could show the proof that the pandemic is completely fake. He could show the world all the evidence they have. But it won't show how far the deep state, how far the mainstream media, how far the corrupt politicians would go to keep their power. And the people have to see this part. And this is why the patriots, yes, and when I say allowing them to do this, that's exactly what they are doing. They are allowing them to do this. Now, when you look back in some of the posts, Q has told us that the National Guard will be placed in certain cities. What's happening right now? What did Bill Barr just mention, Operation Legend? Who's moving into different cities right now? Federal agents. The federal police. Think about it. Why are they being placed in different cities? Do you think it's just about the crimes? Do you think it's just about the riots? Or was this planned... And they wanted the mayors, the governors, because they understood their playbook. They wanted them to do this, which gave them the opportunity to move these individuals into position. The question is, why are they being moved into position? Think about it for a second. We'll discuss that a little bit later in this report. But the deep state, the mainstream media, the corrupt politicians, they're throwing everything they have at the election. And we already see they're, even going back in time, still bringing up the Russian collusion, the Russian interference in elections. They're still pushing that. This is from CNN Politics. It says, Democrats raise concerns over a Russia-linked campaign targeting Joe Biden's presidential run. Why would they say this? They're saying it because they already know he's going to lose. And it doesn't matter if it's him or someone else. They already know he's already lost the elections or whoever they replace him with. They have already lost the elections. This is why they're using this right now. And remember, it's not just the Democrats. It's Republicans. It's Democrats. It's individuals that hide behind the curtain. It's Hollywood actors, actresses, the mainstream media, corporations. All these different entities, they're part of the swamp. Now, I'm not saying every single person, but those who are screaming the loudest, they're the ones who have the most to lose, and that's why they're screaming. Think about what has been happening here. The swamp, like Trump has been saying, it's deep, it's white. It's actually a lot deeper than he originally thought. How many hands are in the pot? And where does this all lead back to? It leads back to the central bank. Now, during this pandemic, even though this agenda was pushed forward by the deep state, the patriots are directing which way they want this to go. Remember, during this pandemic, what have we seen so far? Well, we've seen Ghislaine Maxwell arrested. We've seen Richard Gunnell releasing declassified information. We've been showing that certain mayors and governors, they are tyrants. Trump showed that we brought two hospital ships in, set up hospital beds, and these weren't even used. The report came out that these individuals during the pandemic, they were pushing individuals into nursing homes, killing the elderly. This is about exposure. And during this whole time, Trump has been talking about opening the schools, saying, listen, if colleges don't open, then foreign students, they won't be able to stay in the U.S. Now, why did he mention mention it and then back off? What was the reason for it? Well, I do believe, like everything else, he's exposing academia's addiction to foreign students. Remember, a lot of these colleges, they receive federal funds. And I think he's bringing attention to just how many are here and how the government is funding these institutions. So the federal government, 
supplies higher education with billions in grants every year. Now, that doesn't stop colleges and universities from thumbing their nose at their federal benefactors by enrolling illegal immigrants and boycotting companies that work with ICE. The relationship between higher education and foreign students is also a driver for visa overstays. The Department of Homeland Security reported in 2017 that more than 606,000 visitors overstayed their tourist, work, business, and student visas without the revenue from foreign students. So, higher education, they make the argument, listen, if we don't have these foreign students, we're going to have to raise a tuition on the American students. Well, this is false. Because the alternatives to raising tuition, they can tap into their massive endowments. Like, example, Yale, their endowment is worth more than $29 billion. Princeton is over $25 billion. And so on and so forth. So we'll just leave it there. I'm trying to make the case here that we can clearly see that if we stand back and look at all the different moving parts, that there is a profound movement within our society, within government, within academia, within the media, within Hollywood as they make movies, that is trying to prepare the American people to submit and allow this country to be collapsed in on itself in the name of a neo-communist regime. And we're seeing this take place at many different levels. And it's time for us to be activated as a united people and joined together in our common cause as one American nation that will prevail. We need to recognize that a grand manipulation has been set against us, a sophisticated geopolitical subterfuge that utilizes ubiquitous media influence of the big tech, Twitter, Google, Facebook. It's really a cartel. It's really a technological cartel says in its own words that it can shift 15 million votes based on their own user influence alone. Wider popular culture has long been entirely enthralled to the leftist ideological zeitgeist, which tries to obscure biological genders and mandate an atheist worldview and attempts to sexualize children. And this is coming into focus in the Epstein case. And recently, in the presidential debates, the LBGTQ community trotted out a nine-year-old boy in one of the campaigns and insisted that the boy was gay. And no one stopped to ask how a nine-year-old boy had concluded that after puberty, when he got older, after adolescence, he would then choose to elect to engage in homosexual relationships. This is a child, this is child abuse. A nine-year-old boy should not be inculcated with gay sexual relations at nine years of age. He's just a child. We must remember who we are and refuse to accept the normalization of perversity within our family culture. It's obviously too late for the wider social culture. As these new levels of conflict begin to descend on us and we realize that we're in this absolute war for the soul of our country, I want us to take a closer look at this combination between the media and the college campus and academia and the big tech giants and Twitter and Facebook and Google and Silicon Valley and Hollywood, which in this complexity of social institutions and internet influence in the cybernetic age, it's really technotronic era, we have no choice but to resist the tyranny and the usurpation of our own common sense. So we're back here at the Looking Glass Forum after our little break there, and I just want to get right back into our discussion about the uh, about the enormous influence that the, the tech firms exert over our lives. And I want to get right into a really interesting interview here that we have that's on the Rubin Report, and they've been getting into some interesting discussions. We're here with Ted Cruz, and they're, we're really just discussing what it's going to take to confront the problem of a technotronic tyranny that can censor and even influence the shape of our collective thinking. The left hates when anything in pop culture they want to own it all. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's good to have fun. Now that we've gotten the important stuff out of the way, let's talk about big tech, because you've been right in the center of this thing. As you know, I've been fighting it from my from my garage for the last five years. Uh, Trump did this executive action. Uh, 230 is the, yep. is the, what do you call it? It's not, it's not a bill, it's a... So uh, it's section, section 230 of a bill called Communications Decency Act. Right, so basically what he did was strip some protections from the big boys, from Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. Now, my personal preference I think we're pretty close on this. The libertarian side is you don't want the government running around sending regulators to these yep. companies because yep. that's not going to do good. But stripping protection, protections 
to me seemed like the right idea. Do you, do you agree it was the right idea? Is it enough? Is it not enough? Etc. So I think it is the right idea. Um, it, it's something I've been urging Trump to do for three years. So I'm, I'm glad that, that the administration did it. Um, listen, I agree with your sensibility. Nobody wants government free speech police. I mean, that, that would be a terrible outcome. Well, some people do. But, uh, <laughs> nobody who's not insane, and that's a qualifier we can talk about some more because there are a lot of people that fall into that category, but government free speech police would be a terrible outcome. But what big tech is doing, it's deliberate, it's conscious, it's naked, it's abusive, and it's dangerous. I think it's the single biggest threat to free speech and democracy we have in this country. Uh, because big tech has become a monopoly controlling the instruments of communication. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've chaired multiple hearings in the Senate on big tech censorship. And one of the hearings we talked about a document that Google had prepared. It's called the Good Censor. Mm -hmm. So they prepared it. It's a PowerPoint. about 50 pages long. And it talks about how the old vision of the Internet was the free speech laissez-faire internet where people could speak and say what they wanted. And then it talked about the new vision of the internet, and this is Google's own words, is the European-style censorship model. And by the way, the four companies that Google identified as implementing it were Google, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Mm -hmm. This is a conscious decision, and, and the dangers are enormous. So the question is, how do you fix it? If it is a problem, we have a long discussion about whether it's a problem, although they're not hiding it anymore. Yeah, I think most sane people at this point would agree that they're, even, even people that disagree with us politically on this, I think most people realize that the extraordinary amount of power is a problem, one way or another. So I will, it's interesting, the political debate, though, one of the talking points of big tech and the left is they don't engage in censorship. And the reason they say that is they say, well, there are no objective data that prove we do. And, and it's, you know, there's the old aphorism of the, of the guy who kills his parents and then pleads mercy on the court because he's an orphan. Mm -hmm. It's true. There are no objective data because big tech controls all the data. And they, 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 there's zero transparency, zero accountability. So you can use anecdotes. And I, I've gone through lots and lots of specific anecdotes. But every time you ask big tech, and I've done it in writing, I've done it in hearings, the simple questions. Um, all right, in the 2018 election cycle, how many posts from Republican candidates for office did you block or shadow ban? How many posts from Democratic candidates for office did you block or shadow ban? There are objective answers to that. I mean, there is a number. Yeah. And they know the number. And they refuse to answer it and then say there are no data. And, and so how do you fix it? I think one way to fix it is getting rid of the special immunity from liability that big tech has that Congress gave them. So that's 230, right? That's 230. Okay. And the reason 230 was passed, Congress believed big tech would be a, a neutral public forum. In other words, it wasn't fair to sue Facebook for a comment made by an individual commenter because it wasn't they weren't the speaker it was someone else and so that was that was congress's reasoning so we're going to give big tech this immunity from liability because it's third party speakers and we want to see the internet grow mm -hmm. well what's happened is big tech changed their mind they said we're not going to be to use the the language of the google document the the lazy fair free speech place anymore we're going to censor well you know what if they're going to silence views they disagree and promote views they agree with they don't deserve i don't believe as a public policy matter a special protection book for liability hey guys just a quick reminder that the rubin report community is officially here this is the first project of my new tech company locals.com and you can get ad-free video ad-free audio podcast you can communicate with me you can communicate with other fans we've got a news feed that has no algorithmic manipulation there's no shadow banning or de-boosting or the rest of it we're going to be building out these communities for all sorts of creators over the next coming months but right Right now, you can sign up at RubenReport.com, or you can download the Ruben Report app in the Apple App Store or on Google Play. There's also the antitrust laws. 
Google is a monopoly. Uh, by any measure, big tech is richer, stronger, more powerful than AT&T was when it was broken up under the antitrust laws. They're bigger than, than U.S. Steel was. Uh, a line from The Godfather, we're bigger than U.S. Steel. Well, they're bigger than U.S. Steel. Um, and that abuse of power. So I've also, you want to talk about the real, what the Trump administration did on Section 230 will be challenged. It's at the FCC. There'll be litigation. The real bite here is federal antitrust litigation, which which I have urged the president to pursue, I've urged the vice president to pursue, I've urged the attorney general to pursue, I've urged the chairman of the Federal Trade Commission to pursue, I've urged... So we'll just pause it here, and we're taking a look at how the issue of the supremacy of the technology, even the technology that we're using right now, and whether the ethical questions of how much that technology is allowed to reach out and control our expressions of speech or art or political ideas or religious matters. Even on this podcast, we are going to expound on very difficult, sensitive topics. But this is America. And in America, we have constitutional protections, and we're going to have to insist at all times that we have the right to engage in the freest thinking, the freest living, and asking the most penetrating, cumbersome questions. There are no golden calves and their religious ethos that we need to put in place of our consciousness and, like I said, our common sense, our reason that we that which we, we know to be right and wrong is what we have to rely on. We can't let other people tell us what is right and wrong. That's that becomes propaganda. That's something we saw in 1929 in in Germany when people took on an extermination and a mass murder because their commanders told them to and they had to follow instructions. That's not that's not how we live in America. So I mean, we as end users are not really able to fully comprehend the gravity of influence that these tech monopolies, these technology giants, have exuded over the cognitive realm of our mass consciousness. They have influence over the population and how it thinks of itself as a city, as a nation, and even as a global perspective. A world of individuals who entertain conflicting and competing derivative, personal, political, ideological perspectives, which are framed by where we are born in the world, how we believe governments to interact, and ultimately we're influenced by the propaganda that our government and our society and our institutions use to shape our thinking. Very few rise above the abject intellectual poverty to have a look at the wider geocultural complexity, the various dangers which befall nations who plunge into a conflagration of war or a conspiracy of socialist revolts, both of which produce mass starvation, and that's empirically provable even in today's headlines. This neo-leftist anarchist group that we see creating havoc in the streets of America are not well informed enough to make universal legislative decisions or determinations about legal jurisprudence or law enforcement decisions for our nation. They have been designated as a terrorist group by the nation that they have falsely represented themselves to as having come as liberators, so kind of ideological liberators. So we have to ask the question, does America currently appear to be in a state of liberation or a state of geopolemic invasion? So once again, this is the Rubin Report, and Senator Ted Cruz is on here, and they're talking about their concerns about the ubiquitous power of these tech monopolies. Let's take a listen to a little bit more. Once you suddenly look at the other side and you go, holy cow, you know, these conservatives, these libertarians, they really just want to get out of your way in, in most respects. Once you see that, uh, it's very welcoming. So it's like, I know we have political disagreements. Uh, we disagree on abortion, for example, and I'm more than happy to talk about it if you yeah. want to. But I know that you want to live in the same country as me. And the left has created this odd thing where if you don't agree with them on everything, you're out, man. And I, I just don't want to have anything to do with that. Look, I, I, I get that, and particularly in, in this time. And listen, the age of Trump, everything has gotten personal and angry and it's a morality play you know you have we're so pulled apart but look one of the differences that i get really frustrated with the left they are willing to use government power to impose their worldview on everybody mm -hmm. and to punish anyone who dares dissent this is true in the censorship world this is true it, 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 it is, at the end of the day, the left are status. They believe in government power. You know, I'm someone who, who cares deeply about the Constitution and Bill of Rights and free speech, and that means 
the right of people who disagree profoundly with me to speak and engage. And, and, and I agree with John Stuart Mill. The cure for bad speech is more speech. So don't silence views you disagree with. Engage with them on the merits and actually have ideally a, a civil, decent, respectful conversation. And you're right, you know, immediately starting with, you know, if every conversation begins with your Klansman, that, that sort of dampens the next step of the conversation. Yeah, but you, you don't get much further than that. Yeah, I got to show you. I have a copy of uh, On Liberty in my nightstand, so um, I I'm with you on that. All right, I'm going to tell you something very funny. So you and I, before the show, were talking about the Houston Rockets, and I'm a diehard Houston Rockets mm -hmm. fan. One of the stranger things I own, when I was, I think I was in college, and I was on an airplane, and Hakeem Olajuwon was on the the title page of, of John Stuart Mill's You, you literally have my whole life in a book. <laughs> Basically, to use, we know they've already used the... Are you worried that, that generally speaking, the right does... A second, so let's... John Stuart Mill's You, you literally have my whole life in a book. <laughs> Basically, that, that, that's absolutely, absolutely incredible. That, I told you that 95 Rockets team is my, my favorite team of all time. All right, so wait a second. So let's, let's push a little further on yeah. this. So because the left wants to use state power in a way that, generally speaking, the right doesn't want to, or at least that you don't want to, if we're to go on this dystopian future idea, are you worried that if these guys really take power... I mean, they're going to start jailing political opponents. They are going to use, we know they've already used the IRS to do all sorts of crazy things. I mean, these are things that are sort of conspiracy theories, and then suddenly, at this point, nothing feels like a conspiracy theory. But it, it's all justified in the, it, there's a self-righteousness to it. We're right, anyone who disagrees is evil. Therefore, anything is justified to suppress the evil. You, you see that with cancel culture, where, mm -hmm. where people go, like, get driven out, get out of the public discourse. Look, when I was... So we'll just leave it right there. But what we can see is that the, the natural course of the conversation is emerging, and people are starting to be concerned about our ability to maintain our free liberties and our constitutional protected rights and the order of our American government in an age when socialist elites are operating within academia, within the government, in your local mayor, your local school district. They're operating within Antifa. They're operating within the Senate. They're operating within the court system. Socialist agitators are operating in the courts in New York, releasing people who they politically agree with, who've been charged with beating the police, destroying property en masse. It didn't matter what they're charged with. If they were part of the Antifa crowd, they were being released by the de Blasio New York court system. So as we're looking at this level of socialist elite control within Twitter, within Facebook, within Google, we have to really start to ask the question, how are we going to be able to maintain our freedoms? Can we bring to bear a sense of proportionality and reason when it comes to these subjects that we've never faced before as a human population, even though civilizations and mighty empires have waned and waxed over the course of antiquity, we have never faced a digital cyber information age. We're starting to fly low-hanging satellites in orbit so that we can make the internet connectivity completely uniform. In this era of digital information, we have already entered a 5G environment, and we have no previous experience on large, scaled-up, technotronic matrix, complete interconnectivity, as the news cycle becomes instantaneous, and the proliferation of internet devices give app designers, digital marketing databases, and colossal tech monopolies, 360-degree mapping, and personal information collection about the user and the devices and their users in the cyberspace in the immediate vicinity, the growing internet of everything. So it's important to bring together different ideas and different parts of this larger conversation. And here we have this very interesting interview here on Rebel Wisdom, and Tristan Harris is the one that they're going to interview, and he has a very interesting perspective here. So let's take a listen. in our sense-making series with one of the most essential thinkers to understand what the big tech platforms and social media in particular are doing to us. 
Tristan Harris has been called the closest thing that Silicon Valley has to a conscience and was named by Rolling Stone magazine as one of the 25 people shaping the world. Until 2016, he worked at Google as a design ethicist until he became so concerned about the direction that the attention economy was going. Social media is distorting all of those signals, all of those heuristics, all of those vulnerabilities of the human mind at every single level. I think that the way to see this is that um, the, the technology has become the new 21st century infrastructure, but is more intimately embedded into our, our, our minds and our nervous systems. Since then, he's made it his mission to reconnect technology with human values through the Center for Humane Technology. In this conversation, we covered how the incentive structure of the attention economy was rewarding polarization and division. To get attention within that, that sphere, I have to use outrage. So both sides, the left and the right, are using outrage to get people to get to get people's attention, and then that just further cleaves the kind of divide between, I think it's 2011 and uh, 2018, between the left and the right, you just see it moving further and further apart. The paradox of free speech in a world of finite attention. This is one of the most critical issues of our time, and we're, we're missing the philosophical distinctions we need. Uh, it's important to realize that free speech absolutism and, and just the, the valuing of free speech was, was valued philosophically by the Founding Fathers at a time when we had an abundance of attention. Um, we needed to make sure that people who um, wanted to speak wouldn't be silenced, but we never thought about is there a finite number of ears to hear everything, or do we have a vast overabundance of information and speech compared to the finite number of ears that we have to hear. And how, if we really wanted to reverse this process, we'd need to recover the concept of consciousness or attention as being something sacred. If we really need to make new choices and put new choices on life's menu, then we need to be able to have a basis of attention, a basis of consciousness that allows us to do something different or new, to think something new that we weren't thinking before. And we have a system right now with social media that broadly narrows the space of human sense-making and choice by reinforcing the old biases. Yes, those other people on the other side are still wrong. Yes, uh, you know, those people over there still don't like me or still I still need that attention from them. We're, we're narrowing the human experience. And I, the big question we're going to have is, can we go back and treat this as something sacred? Technology is has become the sense-making instrument uh, for you know three billion people, and I think that's never been more true in a coronavirus era. Um, because with many of us stuck at home, we are peering through the glasses, the telescope of social media out there to understand what's happening in the world. Because we're not walking around the world as much. You know, there's fewer journalists out there. Uh, we have a, ironically, due to social media's privatization of the attention sphere, um, they've actually hollowed out journalistic organizations. So there's fewer journalists actually going out there because it's less profitable to run local news organizations. So we are really left to, you know, this set of plot set of platforms to make sense of what's going on in the world. Um, and it's become the primary sense-making vehicle. I mean, in my first, to introduce uh, your viewers or listeners to some of my work initially, um, I, when I was at Google as a design ethicist, had, had made this presentation back in 2013 saying, never before in history have essentially 50 designers at three tech companies determined what 2 billion people's attention is going to be on a daily basis. And that we, as those technology designers, have a moral responsibility responsibility in holding the kind of collective consciousness carefully uh, because we don't have a choice. I mean, we, we can't not hold it. We can't just take our hand off the steering wheel and just let chaos rule. I mean, we are shaping 3 billion people's attention on a daily basis. So the question is, what do we do with that responsibility? And when you use algorithms, uh, automated programs, automated rules, like whatever gets the most clicks should go to the top of people's feeds, whatever gets the most likes or shares, those are three different ways to rank a news feed, but they are imprecise in what they're selecting for. And they tend to select, as everybody now knows, I think, for the kind of outrage or extreme, uh, uh, you know, attention-grabbing things, which do not correlate with the kinds of different editorial rules or algorithms that you, as a, you know, someone who was in journalism before doing this podcast, would would choose to rank what's going to happen in this interview. I mean, when you proceed in this interview right now with me, you're not going to be sorting by let, what question could I ask you next that will cause the most attention to continue. And uh, there are actors who can win that way in games theoretically if they outcompete the other actors that's what causes this kind of what we call the race to the bottom of the brainstem uh, for attention that uh, if actors are just acting on the basis for what gets the most attention
attention, whether that's a journalist or Trump, uh, who actually does actually operate this way, uh, or uh, technology platforms, you end up with a very different kind of collective consciousness and collective psyche than um, if you're actually making grounded, editorial, thoughtful, values-based decisions. And we tend to not be very articulate about what values we would choose to curate what should go into our attentional lives, um, both individually in that we let lots of things rush into our psyche the moment we wake up in the morning and uh, you look at your phone within the first two minutes of getting up, um, uh, and you know collectively. Yeah, in the first film in this series, I put out a quote from Jonathan Haidt where he talked about that in, I think he, he dated it back to about 2013, 2014, that effectively what we have been doing is the equivalent of doubling the gravitational constant. And he sort of, get, I thought it was a beautiful analogy because he said, imagine that you change the gravitational constant, all sorts of weird things would start happening. Planes would start falling out of the sky. You'd find it more difficult to walk, all of these sort of things. And he, he said, that's kind of what we've been doing with social media and that really kind of frames I think why everything feels just more intense that it's just raised the intensity of everything that suddenly we're even our even our conversations are becoming performative we've got this sort of sense of a hollowing out of the private sphere and this sort of sense of being disconnected from what we actually really think because we're we're now doing something because we think that's what other people will reward us for or everything starts to become this kind of weird I don't know hollowed out sort of sense. Um, Do you find that a useful metaphor? Yeah, Jonathan uh, Hyde is a a friend and we've had many conversations about this. I think his metaphor is exactly spot on. Um, Is who do we trust to adjudicate what should and shouldn't be amplified or said? And so this is actually the fundamental challenge of our times because one of the ironies here is that social media has had an accelerating effect on the delegitimization of our um, sense-making institutions. You know, do you trust or want the Trump administration deciding, you know, what should get amplified through regulating Facebook as a national utility? Um, Probably not. Do you trust the WHO to be the best authoritative source of information on the coronavirus when, you know, they gave conflicting advice, as I think you've covered well in your podcast? Probably not. And do you trust also the vast number of, you know, the populace to simply be making good sense of the situation with very little information from armchairs, not knowing anything about epidemiology? Probably not. And yet, were there pockets from a bottom-up sense of people who didn't have a background in epidemiology, but were doing their own math and research? Um, I think the famous essay on the, what was it, The Hammer and the Dance, Tom, Thomas Peo, who I think you interviewed on your podcast, you know, he was a Silicon Valley engineer and not a, um, a medical uh, epidemiologist, but had a background in virality. So this real question is, when we have sense-making, um, we, we've kind of lost trust in the top-down big institutional authorities, whether it's the White House or the WHO, but then if you use the bottom-up decentralized mechanisms, we don't have a good way right now to sort whose voices should be amplified. But we can't not choose, because there is going to be an amplification. So in this interview, we can see that people are trying to find the vernacular, the vocabulary, the terminology to describe what we're dealing with as the dilemma that we are being confronted with as an advancing civilization that is in the juxtaposition between the past and the future. Leads us to a direct opposition to those biases within our own belief systems. Those things we most hate in others are the same things we most hate in ourselves. We are projecting our own negative self-image on others in a phenomenal way, and it's causing a destructive disposition within our wider cultural psyche, which is being obviously magnified through these social media instruments. Alright, so as we're looking at this wider organization between the college campuses and the street radicals who are hiding behind their black lock and their umbrellas and their apparatchiks that are operating within the tech giants, we can see that they're operating to, to shadow ban and to censor all opinions that don't line up with this wider political position. It's really a global political position. It's really trying to bring the United States into line with the wider United Nations political agenda. So let's take a look at how Mark Levin has an interesting guest here who gets up close and personal with this in this environment. Now in Portland, as you know, it's really going on two months now. Democracist anarchists, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, and the others have been violently Uh, threatening and uh, damaging, really, a federal courthouse, among other places. 
and you have a Tom Ridge, you have John Kasich, uh, you have Democrats and media types saying of the President of the United States that he's a dictator, that you can't send in uh, federal law enforcement unless, of course, they're coming in with marked cars and uniforms, so of course, they can be bombarded and attacked. But Ami Horowitz is uh, a guerrilla f- filmmaker. He goes into these areas. He's got a lot of guts. He's very shrewd about how he uh, finds out what's taking place. And Ami is with us right now. Ami, you've been in Portland, correct? I'm in Portland as we speak, my friend. The great one, Mark Levin. Thank you, my friend. Tell me what's going on. Uh, it, it is, uh, look, it's, it's, if you're in Portland, it looks pretty normal. I mean, Portland in its best days are stinky and full of homeless people. But... During the day, it's, it's, it's the way it is. But then at night, around 10 o'clock, it, it transforms. There's a five-square uh, block around the federal courthouse, which becomes utter chaos and anarchy at 10 o'clock p.m. What essentially happens is, last night I was there, and I'll be there tonight as well, about 5,000 people show up. And the media malpractice on way of the way they describe these people is outrageous. They describe them as this big kumbaya, people having a great time and music and wonderful. Everything is wonderful until the big bad federal cops come out and begin to randomly, you know, disappear people. It, it is nothing like that. This is a crowd that is involved in sheer chaos, anarchy, and violence. You have hundreds, I witnessed hundreds of people attacking the federal courthouse, trying to burn it down, attacking it with pipes and hammers, while the entire crowd of 5,000 people cheer them on. You know, I hate, Mark, I hate when they say the crowd was mostly peaceful. Mostly peaceful means violent, okay? If they're not stopping the people doing the violence, they are participating in the violence by giving these guys air to breathe. And that's made it only after the buildings are attacked do the federal officers come out and use, and, and I was caught up in it, humane uh, crowd dispersal, which is pepper gas, uh, gas and, and, and pepper spray. Uh, now, listen, it's not fun. I was, I, I breathed it in. I had a hard time breathing and seeing, but I was there on the front lines, and that's okay. I moved out, and then I was able to breathe again. But but the way it's being perceived by the media is so outrageous, so ridiculous, Mark, it drives me nuts. Now, you're in there. Were you noticed, and did anything happen to you? So, uh, aside from, from being in the, uh, in the uh, firing range of the pepper spray and the gas, yeah, about an hour or so in, uh, a couple of people recognized me, started yelling at me, and then what you have around the federal building is all this, like, pieces of glass, because they keep throwing uh, uh, glass bottles at the, uh, at the officers who are surrounding the building trying to protect it. So they were picking up the handfuls of glass and throwing at me, and it kind of cut up my arms. Are they totally fine? Totally okay now. I can handle it. But it's uh, it, it's a crazy scene, man. And you have like, first of all, you've got hundreds of people with umbrellas. That's kind of the, the Antifa thing. And you have these people with these shields. They build these homemade shields, and they bring it up to the police officers. And it's, it's like some kind of like bizarre hyper hipster uh, doofus Vikings with their shield walls. It's just a it's a not so scene, man. And yet, let me ask you a couple of questions. First of all, you're the mayor of a city. How can you tolerate this? Well, first of all, you have to understand, why are the federal troops, not troops, but the federal officers there to begin with? I was there, I did not see a single, I mean, Mark, a single Portland police officer, okay? They have totally and completely acquiesced to the Antifa thug crowd, okay? This is, what, this is why you saw the, the burning and the looting of all our... Major left-wing blue cities, because these mayors, whether it be in, in Seattle or in New York or in Chicago or New York or here in Portland, you see these guys. You know, look, I want to say quietly acquiesce, but I think these people actually, in some cases, have full-throated support for these people. They keep claiming they're 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 peaceful protesters. They're so peaceful. Blah 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 blah. If they don't care. I think they like this. They like the agitation. They like the fact that they are they're trying to create as difficult and a re-election environment for the president as possible. So these left-wing mayors want to see their cities burn so they can point to the president and say, ha, this is your fault. I think that's what their plan is. Now, if that's their plan and they expect the Democrats to win, then they expect the Democrats will take care of them. 
give them billions and billions of dollars to rebuild their cities afterwards. Well, I, I think that's the plan is not just to have the Democrats rebuild their city. The, the, the plan is, is to have the Democrats give them money altogether. Look, you know, you're seeing it now. There are people who are not going back to work. My coffee shop that I love to go to, you can't, they can't be open for more than two days because they can't get people to come back because they're being paid so much money uh, to, to, to not work. So, yeah, they're, what they're looking for is they're looking to have people and the, and the Democrats uh, give them money. That's we build, but to live their lives. That's what they're. That's what these guys want. Ultimately, they want to live in a socialist country where they don't have to work. Now you're going to be there again tonight. You already recognized last night. Isn't this getting a little dangerous for you? So I'm going to. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be wearing my mask. I'll put a mask on and uh, put a hat on, and, and hopefully I can avoid it. And then look, if, if it happens again, we'll just take off. But I think it's the story is too important for me not to be there on the front lines capturing it for you all. I, yeah, there, there may be a little bit of danger involved in it, but it's it just not. It, when I go the risk reward. Um, uh, calculation, uh, the reward is too high. The, the, the importance of this information to be disseminated is, is too important for me to worry about um, smaller things like uh, safety. Like your life? Well, uh, <laughs> now, what, now, what do you make about politicians here, even like former Bush officials, attacking the president, saying he's treating this like his personal militia, says Tom Ridd. They haven't been out there. They don't even know what's going on, do they? Now, you know, it's actually, it's really disheartening to hear people like Ridge and Kasich uh, speak this way. I mean, they, they either have no idea what's going on, or uh, conversely, and I hope this is not the case, but it's quite possible, because you know they have a antipathy toward the president, that they're, they're doing what I said the Democratic officials from these cities are doing, that they want to see the, the president lose. So in order for the president to lose, the more chaos you see, um, the better chance they have for Biden to win. I don't want to believe that, Mark, but it, it, either they're totally blind, willfully blind, which I don't think they are. I can't imagine it. Uh, or they, they simply want the president to lose it. That means burning down some of our cities, so be it. Uh-huh. And uh, there is, it's a bizarre thing, uh, this notion that you can't have federal law enforcement protect a federal courthouse. We have, we have legal analysts in this country who are actually saying there's no legal – who are so screwed up. It's so wrong. What do you make of this? I mean, you know, it's, it's, so, it's so funny. It's just, there's this weird federalism going on among these Antifa anarchists, right? This, this weird states' rights. All of a sudden, they're, they're big federalists. Oh, my God, we want to have our states to run our own states. We don't want the federal involvement. It's kind of weird. I don't know if they even know what that term means, but um, – Look, it's a. I, I also, and as you are, I, I am a federalist, and I believe that as, as many rights as possible should be bestowed on the states and not taken by the federal government. But, but, and this is a huge but, you can't leave federal buildings unprotected when they're under attack. I mean, it's ludicrous. It's, it's lunacy. Like I said, the Portland police are nowhere to be found. If they're not going to protect these places, who else are you going to call upon? Right? Mm -hmm. Exactly right. Aren't they concerned about federal judges and, and all the rest that takes place in courthouses? Now, they tried to and maybe succeeded in blocking the, the front doorways of the courthouse last night and trying to set the courthouse on fire. I was there. I filmed it. Absolutely. No, so that, that could, place down. And they don't know if people may even be in there working late at night. They don't know what's going on inside that courthouse. Well, the, the, the people are in there. I mean, we, we, there are, the, all, all the federal officers are, are, are in there. That's where they're in protecting the building. No, they, 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 they know that. Don't, they are, I was there. They all, they were saying burn, baby, burn. They wanted to burn these people alive. First of all, let's make something very clear. The graffiti you see, and then the whole, they, they graffiti the entire building. And the graffiti you see most often, Mark, is the graffiti kill the cops, kill federal officials, okay? Not the, not just defund the police, not like I can't breathe or Black Lives Matter, right? You see some of that too. But you, the predominant graffiti that you see, and I filmed it, I, I've got it all. It's all kill, murder, burn them alive. These are the words that they use and the graffiti they use because this is how they feel. No, they know these people are in there and they're burning them on purpose. It's shocking. Now, look. Um, you take care of yourself tonight. Make sure you have a nice, good mask on. Dress up in black so you look like one of them. Bring your umbrella. Not a pink umbrella, a black umbrella. And uh, so you fit right in. And you better be careful. 
I will. I, 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 well, I'm bringing security with me this time, so I should be okay. All right. Good luck. Keep in touch with us. Thank you, buddy. So that gives us a very interesting periscope into what's happening close up in that environment and how people are, even the people that are filming and there to photograph the events are starting to feel about the, the political cynicism of some of these anarchist groups. We have to aggressively begin to exert the effort each day to inform ourselves and to assert our own views in the national narrative. We cannot allow our own convictions to be eroded by the continuous onslaught of political adversity. We cannot allow federal stimulus funds to keep going to universities so they can train BLM anarchists whose political platforms are insulated and funded by Twitter, Google, Facebook as they shadow ban your comments in opposition to the socialist maneuver. Hundreds of billions to teacher teachers unions to get paid so they don't teach our children because COVID. We're seeing a conscious effort to bring tyranny down on law-abiding citizens while funding and internet adulation is pipelined into Antifa as they attempt to overthrow the government. So I'm going to leave it with that tonight. I hope you guys have a great week, and we'll talk to you next time.